Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. My guest today is Calvin Robinson. Calvin is a broadcaster. You will have seen his shows on GB News. He's also a teacher and an ordinand. Over a number of years now, he has been training to be a priest in the Church of England, but has faced some stiff resistance because of his conservative values, all of which we discussed during the course of this podcast. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Calvin, thanks very much for joining me today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Now, you've been uh, training to be a priest for a while now, but you've also moved into broadcasting. Mm. Just before we get on to what has happened this week uh, with the Church of England, which I'm sure we'll want to talk about, can you give us some sense of your background? Did you always know that you wanted to do this for a living? Oh, goodness, no. Um, And it's not for a living as well. That's a good point to raise. Um, It's a vocation. It's a calling. And it's a a calling that I received quite late on in life. Uh, I used to work in technology, you know, mobile design, websites, that kind of stuff. I used to live what I would call quite a superficial life, you know, making money and enjoying my, my time and you know, looking forward to going out and uh, having drinks on a Friday. And Sounds quite fun. Though. Yeah, yeah, but very superficial, very uh, unfulfilling. Mm-hmm. And I reached a certain point in my life where I, I felt a call to do something else. To, to, I don't like to say give something back because that sounds very, you know, um, it was a want to be more fulfilled and I want yeah. to, to do something more rewarding. And I addressed that by looking into how I could give back in my sector. And I was in computer science. And at the time, there was a new computer science curriculum from Michael Gove's uh, innovative um, education reforms. And I thought, this is an area that I could work on, that I can make a difference in. Little did I know at the time that this was part of a wider calling. So I got into teaching. I loved it. But that was only part of the calling. And and the priesthood is is, is teaching, but it is also pastoral, which is also part of teaching. But it's also sacramental. And I felt like there was still a part of my calling that I wasn't addressing. And that was the ordained ministry that I've been training towards. I think that word vocation is key. I mean, as you know, I was a teacher as well. And I do think the best teachers see it as a vocation. They are absolutely called to do it. Uh, and the ones that aren't so strong <laughs> aren't in it for that reason. Yeah. You know, um, so that's an interesting development. And obviously, how long have you been training for the priesthood? Uh, so I've been at Oxford for the last couple of years, but the whole process has taken, must be like six years now, the yes. whole discernment process. You know, you go to groups, you go to readings, you get involved in this and that, and you, you do some real life ministry and you reflect on it. And it's been a long, long process. Did you ever think about staying on with teaching or was this something that you just felt you had to move on to? I did. I, I mean, and I still do. I, I love teaching. It's a passion. Education is a real passion of mine. But I looked at it and I, th- I thought that what we're doing here is we're producing young people with great results. We're sending yeah. kids out into the world with, with good results. Finally, good academic results. But we're not sending out good Christians. We're not sending out good people into the world. There's, there's, a, there's a character element of this that is missing in a lot of good schools. And we don't even have a lot of good schools, actually, at the moment. We, we have a very a handful of schools that are doing the academic stuff right, but not many are doing the faith stuff or the character stuff right either. Um, so I thought that's an area that I need to, at some point, work on. And I'd love to, um, at some point in my future, probably set up a school uh, as, a, as a priest headmaster. That's, that's a vision that I've had. Whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know, because I try to I try to not set ambitions and goals, and I try to walk through the doors that God opens to me. But that's something that I personally would like to do. So the, the way that you're describing uh, the way the current state of education is a sense in which well, people would see that and think, this is a conservative. I can hear a conservative voice here. As in, you feel that things have got worse. Oh, yeah, would you say that's, that's a fair <laughs> assessment? Yeah, the education system is a mess. I was thinking recently, if I had a child, where would I send them? 
and, I, and I'm a big proponent of state schools. I think I believe in the state school system, but I can't think of one that I would send my child to. And that's an issue. And I, you know, I've, been, I've worked in some, I've been deputy head in some, I've been director and governor of others, but I still can't think of a school that I would comfortably send my child to. And that is problematic. So why has that happened? Well, it's just like the long march through the institutions, isn't it? It's infect, infected everything. And, and teacher training is the core of what they've infected because they're sending teachers into schools believing that you know throwing a chair isn't bad behavior it's a form of communication it's like no that's that's bad behavior and the child needs discipline and children thrive in an environment where there's conformity and discipline so because they know what the boundaries are and children push boundaries by nature we have to set them so they know where they can meet them and once they have those boundaries they can thrive within an environment and learn and become better people. So that is something that I think has changed a lot, hasn't it, in terms of uh, just the, the culture of education surrounding discipline. But what we see is, as you said, I mean, Catherine Burblesing's school and the Michaela school is, is a good example. When children have those frameworks, and I don't think this is necessarily a conservative thing to say, children, when they have flat frameworks, when they have discipline, they thrive on it and it, yeah. they, they respect you more for it. I mean, I think every teacher knows this. So why is it that given the, the experiential aspect of teaching, you, 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 you learn that very, very quickly. That the teacher training courses, all the people in authority, they seem to take a different view. Well, they drive it out of you. I remember when I was training to become a teacher, they, they'd clamp down on the language. They're, like, they're not pupils, they're learners, and you're there to facilitate their learning. I was like, oh, I thought I was here to teach them. You know, when they take away the word teacher, it becomes problematic because you don't know what you're you're there for in the first place. And it's all child-centered learning. The child should direct the learning. No, the child doesn't know what they don't know. That's why I'm there. I'm the subject expert. It's my job to pass on the knowledge to the young people. They don't know what they need to learn. Yes. uh, The whole thing is upside down. It's bonkers. But they think they're doing a service to these young people. And what they're doing is letting them down. And this is something that's been going on a longer time than what we would call the current woke movement, which I think is a relatively recent development. This is the last 10, 12 years, something like that. Would you say that's, would you say they're related? No, I'd say it's all the same thing. I'd say okay. it started off as political correctness and that's evolved into wokeness because we let them get away with it. We thought, well, of course we want to be politically correct. We don't want to offend people. You know, we, we don't want people to feel upset by what we're saying. Of course, it's, you know, it's polite to self-censor. And we, we did that for so long that it got to a point now where it's, we're obliged to self-censor. It's no longer good manners to do it. We are expected to do it. So let's talk a bit about the church because, of course, this is directly related. What we've just described there with authority figures within education saying they know one thing, they know what's best, and it actually isn't best. It's counterproductive. It looks like a similar thing is happening in the Church of England insofar as um, you would have thought that this, whatever whatever we want to call this movement, wouldn't infect religious institutions in the way that it has. But we have a situation where, and I remember you uh, talking about this before, to give an example, Brexit has become amongst the uh, the echelons of the clergy uh, a, a, a rude word almost, you know. And yet, the majority of uh, Anglican members of the Anglican congregation would would support it. So you have this situation where the you have the the the, the flock, if you like, mm. uh, being completely dissociated from those in authority. Yeah. What's happened there? Well, two thirds of Anglicans voted for Brexit, so it's quite a majority, a two bigger thirds. majority than the British public actually. Whereas one Bishop outwardly supported Brexit. And he actually got cast off to the far end of the country. He's now in a small parish down south. Uh, like a shameful secret or something. In, in penance. <laughs> it is that bad that- because the bishops spoke out against Brexit as if it was a great evil, uh, not realising that the vast majority of the people in their pews would be supporting Brexit. And it's not a case of... There's nothing in scripture suggesting that we can't have sovereignty and control of our own borders and all this kind of stuff. So it's not a Christian issue. It's a political issue. And we see far too often the bishops coming out 
in favour of left, left-wing liberal politics when it's actually got nothing to do with their role. Would you be concerned if they were coming out with politics that you agreed with more, if that was the norm, if bishops were more? I mean, we had this week Justin Welby, uh, some would say he's been roundly criticised for making a comment about the government's policy on, on the uh, migrants in Ru- Rwanda. Yeah. Do you think he was right to do that? Do you think that clergymen should just stay out of politics? Well, they can't. Uh, what I think they should do is shape their politics around their faith rather than shaping their faith around their politics. So what I think Justin Welby did in this instance, and he's done it previously, and a, a number of other bishops have, is say, this is ungodly, or this Jesus wouldn't like this, or you know, try to use their religion as a weapon mm. against politicians that they disagree with or policies that they disagree with rather than the other way around. So I, I think, you know, I would be happy with bishops that were fighting uh, a pro-life argument, for example, because that's rooted in scripture, or against, I know this is a controversial one, but homosexual marriage, for example, which is a debate that's coming up in the church very soon. That is something that is rooted in scripture, and, and that is what they should be doing. So you can't separate politics from the faith, because it's a political faith. But isn't there a problem within that, insofar as, you know, when we're going into biblical exegesis, when we're talking about interpretation of scripture that those interpretations are not necessarily set theologians disagree among themselves about what the bible says about certain things no because it, within anglicanism we have the formularies and the articles say that we can't quote scripture in a way that would contradict another point, part of scripture so we can't weaponize it in that way we, we've safeguarded against that right so then what about for instance let's go back a bit to the occupy wall street movement for instance and when they were sort of gathered around saint paul's and and uh, giles fraser of course was at the time uh, there uh, and supported the protesters on theological grounds, on biblical grounds, uh, because of course, uh, part of Christ's ministry, an important part of Christ's ministry, is is is, is associated with the sick and the poor, blessed are the meek, etc. Yeah, yeah. So, so he has a scriptural grounds there to support what is ostensibly there a left wing cause. Would you accept that? Yeah, I probably would. I would disagree with it, but I would accept it. Right. I see. I see. So, so you're not you you're not saying that. The, that people should stay completely out of the church. I don't, stay out of no, I don't think they can stay out of politics. I think it's a, it, it's a faith that teaches people how we should be good, how we should live a good moral life. You can't do that without being political. There are certain things that we need to fight for, certain things we need to fight against. Uh, you know, in Scripture it says fight the good fight for the faith. That's yeah. what we should be doing. But what we can't be doing is getting party political. And that's what I think is happening at the moment. We, you know, we've heard the yes. bishops call, call out Dominic Cummings far more often than we've heard them fight for the sanctity of life. That mm. is a great disgrace. So when it comes to uh, this, let's call it the woke movement, it's the only shorthand that really works, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's not just the Church of England. Now, I've spoken to a, um, an evangelical minister in America who says that even the Baptist congregation has become uh, it, it's sort of infected with this stuff. And there have been sort of workshops on intersectional readings of the Bible and this sort of thing. And you think even in America, even in evangelical America, which you always assume is very traditionalist, yeah. even there. So what is it about this? ideology that allows it to permeate absolutely it's almost like nothing is safe nothing is safe nothing is sacred the greatest theological the greatest living theologian in this country at the moment has been compromised by it we saw rome williams recently saying that you know to, to become trans is to become is a sacred journey to become whole i'm like wait a minute there, there is there is a sacred journey, journey to become whole but that is through salvation in christ that is not about um, changing your body and we're, we're all made in the image of christ we're all made in the image of god we and god designed us and created us we should be celebrating that and teaching people to love themselves for who they are not to change that Mm. Uh, but he also said in the statement that churches should be a safe space for people to go without fear of judgment 
They, that is literally the job of church, to teach people the fear of judgment, God's judgment. Judgment day is coming and we will all be judged on how good we were um, it's, and we should have fear of God as well. So the, the, it just seems counter-scriptural and counter-Christian. And if this is coming from our wisest, uh, res most respected theologians, then we're all doomed. I mean, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, when I was at school and I was at a convent school, and obviously this is a Catholic background, but the idea of judgment, the idea of judgment day, hell, heaven, that was sort of embedded into what we were taught and what we were told. Yeah. In fact, I remember my first ever illustrated children's Bible had an image of someone falling into hell. Mm -hmm. They didn't mess around with this. No. Um, but that's become very unfashionable. Oh, very now. You can't talk about hell. You can't talk about sin. And that is why we've, we've fallen even further. Because you have to address sin. That's what our faith is t t telling us about. To avoid sin is to go towards God. You have two options. Either you strive toward holiness, try to live a good life, uh, Christ-like life, or you reject holiness and you go towards sin and evil and, and damn yourself. And nobody wants them to be damned, so we should be teaching people how not to be damned. Therefore, we teach them about sin. But I suppose the counter-argument would be that, you know, once upon a time, the fear of hell and damnation was used uh, to extremes uh, to frighten children, almost like uh, Satan just becomes reduced to a, a, a bogeyman, and, you know, and that, that's not really helpful either. No. And so it's about sort of mitigating the, the worst effects of, I suppose, bullies who would go into the priesthood in order to legitimise their bullying. That is something that I saw evidence of myself. I think that does happen. But I suppose extremes are never a good thing, are they, in anything? The religion is no exception to that. Mm. So you would say uh, there's a way to discuss issues of salvation and damnation without it being uh, turned into a kind of pantomime yeah, villain with, thing. With maturity, just always return to scripture. That's, that's, that's all we need to do as Christians. You know, disciple, to disciple people, use the word of God that was given to us for that reason. Now, you, as you, as we've said, you were training to be a priest. You say six odd years. This is or many years. This yeah, has been yeah. in the in the process. And this week, uh, you've come face to face with the Church of England. There, they appear to be impeding your progress yeah. down this road. Can you explain to everyone what happened there? what you've experienced this week and, and where you think this has come about. Yeah. Um, so at the end of your training, you're assigned uh, a parish to be a curate or an assistant priest where you, you are a priest. Uh, you're a deacon mm. um, working with a priest, kind of training on the job. Yeah. Um, and I was assigned a church in the centre of London. Um, got a good relationship with the priest there. All was going ahead. And it was scuppered. And I believe it was scuppered because of my conservative politics and my conservative theology. Uh, and I've submitted a subject access request to the local di to the Diocese of London to find out what was going on because I wasn't hearing back and things were get going quiet. And I found out that there were many, many elements going on. But at the, at the forefront of the issue is that my bishop, the Bishop of Fulham, suggested that it would be too turbulent to ordain me because there'd be people complaining about my views. So I said, okay, well, show me some of the complaints that we're getting so I can pray on them, discern on them, and improve my practice going forward. Um, and he said, oh, I can't do that, which is why I submitted the subject access request. So I've now seen the complaints. There were less than a handful of complaints about me, surprisingly. I was quite disappointed, actually. Um, but the, but <laughs> what, the, were the, what were the substance but of these were, complaints? Calvin has been on GB News promoting that men should be more masculine. Yes, yes, they should. Part of the problem we're facing in society is that men are afraid of being masculine and we're being effeminized. Absolutely. Um, I had, in fact, most complaints about me were not from members of the public, they're from the Bishop of Edmonton, who was writing to the Bishop of London and the Archbishop of Canterbury, saying things like, I'm really concerned that Calvin does not see this country as institutionally racist. No, I don't. I don't think it is. 
And I love, I love, it's, it's always the middle class white man with his guilt telling, <laughs> telling me that I'm wrong about racism. I love that because it's breaking their own logic. But yeah. I, I've experienced racism plenty of times in this country, plenty of times, but I don't think that makes this country racist. And the independent report uh, from the Cred Commission, the Sewell report, found, didn't find any evidence of institutional racism, although it found many racial disparities. So when the College of London bishops came out to say that this lament, to, to say the cred report caused anger and upset amongst them, I said, "Well, you're, you're looking at it the wrong way. There are improvements in there that we should be working on." And and I, I see, I saw in this um, email exchange that the Bishop of London said, "Oh, we must be right then. If it's upset, you know, if Calvin thinks that we're wrong about it, we must be right." So they're, they're actually their their opinion on the race issue is directly opposed to mine. It sounds like they're not willing to have a discussion about it, though. I mean, I think one, one of the reasons why a lot of people perceive the woke movement as a form of religion, as a new kind of religion, is because those kind of things are essentially faith-based. The idea that we are, uh, you know, and it sounds like a slur against religion in general, and it's not really. Um, it, it's more that this is, this is a, a kind of fundamentalist religion that says we have to believe that everything is institutionally racist. That's, a, that's an aspect of their creed. And then when you push back and say, but look, the evidence doesn't seem to tally with that, yeah. that gets us nowhere. Yeah. So the Archbishop of Canterbury stood up at General Synod and said the church is institutionally racist. And then the church released a report called Lament to Action on how to solve racism. And it was full of critical race theory language. And it was full of affirmative action or positive discrimination, which I think is actually abhorrent and doesn't work and makes things worse, breeds resentment. But it was full of this stuff, like we need to co-opt uh, more black people. or They don't call them BAME, they call them UKME, UK minority ethnics. It's the same you okay. know, grouping all people of colour into one homogenous group. But we need to have them, a percentage of them on every leadership position. We need to co-opt them onto boards, electable boards, that we could go up for election anyway. But apparently black and ethnic minority people can't put themselves up to election, so we need to co-opt them. But anyway, this report came out and I was like, this is, this is not helpful, it's divisive, it's toxic, it's going to uh, worsen the, the yeah. situation. But then off the back of that report, they said, not only is the church institutionally racist, their next report, Contested Heritage, said the country is institutionally racist and used the previous report as evidence, which used the, the Archbishop of Canterbury's statement as evidence. So it's just a link of non... It's all anecdotal. Yeah. One person said something, and that's been backed up and backed up without any evidence. So well, I sat they... down with the Bishop of London, and I said, you know, this is not helping people like me, people like our viewers, people who think that this is a great country, but there is and there are elements of racism we need to work on stamping out. But as a whole, we are we need to work on unity. We need to promote British identity first and foremost over, over immutable characteristics, etc. And she and I said it doesn't help when you sit when you when you make statements like this is the church is institutionally racist. And she just turns to me again, another middle class white person with guilt, turns to me and goes, but Calvin, it is institutionally racist. And I'm thinking if the Archbishop of Canterbury. Archbishop of York, the Bishop of London, the three most powerful influential people in the Church of England are all middle class white people saying that the institution is institutionally racist. Either it's their fault or they're complicit. So surely by their logic, they should step down and promote a black person. Well, well quiet. I mean, what do they mean by that? Because if you make a charge of institutional racism, you're saying that there is something about that, that body that, that has within its core yeah. a racist element, that there are policies there. Yeah. Do they have policies where they say black people shouldn't be allowed to do this and white people should, you know? I don't know. What, but what do they mean by that? You could put two and two together and say if it's institutional racist and these, these people that are saying it is institutional racist are also the ones preventing me from becoming ordained within the Church of England. You could put two and two together and, add f and make five, couldn't you? You could. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. <laughs> I mean, it's not a card that I'm playing, but, you know, yeah. by their own logic. They, I mean, it just strikes me as strange that uh, a religious body that has its own creed, his own set of, of beliefs yeah. derived from scripture, yeah. should import 
a belief system from elsewhere and treat it as sacrosanct, as though it were a, a, a source from the Bible. The Bible says there is neither Jew nor Greek. The Bible says that we are one nation. We are one people, God's people. And it's very clear on that. So for people to be dividing us based on our skin color, which is, you know, race is a very modern concept, actually. Yes. We, we talk about the, the, you know, gender being a modern construct and things like that. But race actually is quite modern, too. Uh, so for the church to be superseding Christian teaching with this new woke teaching is counter-scriptural and therefore unchristian. So what can you do about this situation insofar as if the figures of authority within the church have this particular view, yeah. um, which isn't shared by the majority of their congregation? No. Is it just the case that, and this seems to be a pattern that repeats again and again, corporations are the same, you know, um, the teachers union, uh, mm. I- the civil service, right? So you have all these people in authority who have completely imbibed this this moonshine uh, of wokeness or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But the people that they're in charge of don't feel the same way. But ultimately, if the powerful, if the powerful are on board with this stuff, yeah. don't they win out or is there a way to push back? Well, I think you're right, first and foremost. I think the congregations are small c conservative in general. I think the congregations are Christian. And I think the congregations are the kind of people that tune into GB News. Yeah. And I think the bishops are woke. And I think the bishops are Guardian readers. And they, there's a massive disconnect there. And they, they don't get the people they're preaching to. But can we win back? I don't know. Because there is a single person who appoints bishops. And if that person is woke then you're going to get more woke bishops. And the bishops are gatekeepers. And they see someone like me as a threat and they'll keep me out and other people like me. Fortunately, I have a platform. I can talk about it. But there are many, many conservatives who've been pushed out and starved out that don't have that platform. And we haven't heard from them. And I I think that's the saddest thing. At the moment, you haven't had clarification from them as to why they are stymieing your... Oh, I have. I've had several reasons. So to me... It sounds a bit vague, though. It's very vague. To me, they've said, oh, you know, we think... They've implied that I need to quit Twitter and I need to quit GB News. Okay. And to me, they've said, go away and think about that. But then the emails to each other, I've seen emails from the Bishop of Fulham to the Bishop of London saying that I've just told Calvin he's not going to be ordained in London. I'm like, oh, I didn't didn't see that. Or I didn't hear that. Um, So internally, they've agreed that it's not going to happen. And the Bishop of Edmonton's campaign against me, the constant campaign against me, has kind of had something to play on all of this. But you say they've implied that you should quit GB News. Why on earth is GB News against um, the church? Well, indeed. It doesn't make any sense. To me, you know, I've, I've had an Easter special here. I've produced a Christmas special here. I'm trying to use this platform to spread the good news. I've invited the Archbishop of Canterbury on. I've invited the Bishop of London on. They've refused to come on. And I think they see it as the wrong type of people. Whereas we should be preaching to everybody. Mm. Christ would be preaching to everybody, that's for sure. Um, the fact that they don't want to mingle with us, they don't want to mingle with our type, tells you more about them than it does us, I think. Um, if we, we've got a platform, we've got an audience ready to listen, and we're, I'm, I'm, I'm not here for me, I'm not here for self-promotion. I've offered to give my platform to them, I've offered to give my show to them to come and take it, and they don't want it. I'm, I find this astonishing, because also on GB News, we do have voices from the left, from the right, we hear as, as many different types of opinions yeah. as possible. No one's threatened here yeah. by that. So it seems strange to me that you would, would say, well, if you're, if you're on this channel, that disqualifies you from this from this process it doesn't make sense what they should be saying is look you've got a platform here that's been gifted to you use that platform to spread the good news but they're not saying anything like that no. so what next and what recourse have you you've seen all these emails yeah you've put in the requests yeah. you've got i suppose you've built up a body of evidence or whatever yeah. but does the church have in place any kind of uh 
a procedure you can go through to appeal? Does it have anything like that? There are like no that? policies, there are no procedures. It's all very vague and they are all powerful, uh, the bishops. And they're united, but also independent at the same time. So there's okay. no recourse. And they can, you know, whenever someone applies to them, you know, we've applied to them for a statement and other news outlets have, they'll say, oh, we wish Calvin well. You know, the typical what, what the Brexit party would say about people that it, it didn't want to wish well. <laughs> uh, what the Vote Leave guys would say. Uh, they, then they say, you know, there just aren't enough curacies in London. Whereas I was offered a curacy, it was removed. Um, and I've had other priests in London say, come and work with us, we'll train you up, we'll be your incumbent, and the, the bishops have refused it. So there are places, and that's an outright lie, but that's what the public statement will be. Um, so where do I go? I don't know. Uh, there's no, there is no recourse other than maybe taking them to court. Well, it's not like a, but, but I suppose it's not like a, a, a corporation or a business. No. You, there isn't a tribunal system that, you know, you don't have that. In a sense, they can be as autocratic as they like because <laughs> they're a private, well, yeah. private, but you know what I mean. They're their own body, aren't they? They are. Uh, they still do have to adhere to the laws of the land and you can't discriminate on people, people's political beliefs or their religious beliefs. And I think there's a bit of both going on there. Uh, so I'm talking to barristers about it, see what we can do, not just for me, but to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. Because since I've spoken out, I've heard from so many people say, you know, there's, there's a, there was one instance that I want to talk about without mentioning any names, but there was a, a green lobbyist that they, they put a big inflatable baby up and they said, please stop having babies because it's bad for the environment. I don't know if you saw that. I didn't see that. But there was a priest that quote tweeted it and said, no, please do. Have families. You know, it's the most Christian thing you can do. You know, spread the seed, spread the good word, all of this. Uh, raise a family. And, he, and th this priest has been condemned by the church and actually disciplined by the church. And he turned around to them and said, this is Christian teaching. And they said, I know, we know it is, but it's incendiary. Like we've, we've come so far that it's no longer just, if you're not woke, you're in trouble. Even if you're preaching the gospel, even if you are preaching Christian message, but I've heard from so many priests and ordinance and curates that have said, we are being silenced and or we are afraid of, of speaking the truth because we'll get starved out. You know, they're reliant on the stipend from the church or they don't want to kick get kicked out of their training, college. And it is a very, very terrible situation that we're in right now. So that's an interesting point, isn't it? There appears to be a direct conflict here uh, between the way that the law of the land is going in terms of these issues and traditional religious people. I mean, in Finland recently, you'll know about the politician who was taken to court for quoting the Bible. Yeah. And, you know, I've had people on my show talking about that. I've looked into it. It's not like... I mean, I believe in absolute freedom of speech. So even if this person was being hostile or whatever, that, I, I still think they shouldn't be in court for it. But this person wasn't. No. The politician in question was simply quoting the, the Bible. Mm. Um, there was no abuse. No. There was no uh, vitriol. Nothing like that. It was just the quotation from the Bible. Um, that, do you think anything like that is coming our way? It's, it's right on our doorstep. So the conversion therapy banning bill is the same thing. So they're mixing things like electrocution, and uh, and forced rape, disgusting things that are, are, are already illegal. They're mixing those things with therapy and prayer, mm. and it's not by it's not by accident at all. So what that means is, if you have a child that says to their parent, "I think I might be trans," um, uh, maybe because they prefer trousers to skirts or something. Maybe maybe they are trans. Maybe they do have uh, a gender dysmorphia going on. But whatever the reason for that conversation, if you say to them. Um, well, let's talk about it, or you try and persuade them out of it, or if you offer them some therapy or whatever, you you could be breaking the law. Mm. Not only that, if you if you have someone who says um, I'm married and I'm having homosexual thoughts, I think I might want to um, have therapy to kind of make sure I don't break down my marriage or something. The therapist wouldn't be able to treat them. 
if you t if they go to church and say, actually, I'm having um, indecent thoughts about X, Y, and Z, could you pray for me? They couldn't pray for them because that would be breaking the law. So putting therapy and prayer into acts of breaking the law is a very dodgy ground. Oh, it most definitely is. I mean, the way that religious freedom is protected is to protect free speech because uh, religions also conflict with each other in terms of what values they subscribe to. It makes complete sense to me that you should just protect everyone's right to say whatever they want. I mean, if you have a preacher on a street corner screaming about how evil gay people are, mm. I can just move away from that. But, I, I, you know, I, I don't feel that, that I'm threatened by that. You know, that's... And so it seems strange to me that that would happen. But we already have that, actually. A number of ministers and, and people who've been preaching on the streets have been arrested in this country. Yeah. So that is already happening. Yeah. Um, but it does seem like there isn't an appetite either in Parliament or in sort of major religious bodies to address that. But it will affect everyone eventually, won't well, it? Well, indeed. And there was a letter that went round and a number of priests and ordinance signed it against this conversion therapy bill. But the vast majority of them are in favour of it. And they're in favour of closing down their own freedom of worship. Do you think the trans issue is a particular issue which has impacted on you in terms of their attitude towards you and oh, the things you've said? Because it seems personally. to be a particular... Well, it, you have been quite outspoken about it. I have, but I haven't seen the trans issue come up a lot in the emails. It, mostly, okay. it's just that I don't, I don't think this country is institutionally racist. Um, and I, I don't believe in the ordination of women because I'm a traditionalist. Right. Uh, but there is scope for that in the Church of England. It's called mutual flourishing, and they have to support traditionalists. And this is an area where the Church of England unilaterally made a decision to part away from the church Catholic or, you know, the universal church uh, and do something that everyone else isn't doing. So there should be scope for people that don't believe in it. Do you ever feel that another route would be to go to another denomination of Christianity that would support your views? Or do you feel that that's not a route for you? Yes and no. Um, I don't believe in denomination hopping in the sense that, you know, looking for somewhere that fits your views. I think I believe in one universal church, one Catholic church. And, and in, in this in this country, it tends to be the established church is, is is part of the universal church. But there are other elements that are also part of that. You know, it, it's difficult because I don't want to be it to be about me or my views. I want it to be I want to be part of the faith. I want yes. to be part of the church with a big C. Uh, but if the church doesn't want me, then I have to look elsewhere. It's just when I was uh, studying for A level Christian theology, my teacher was a former. Anglican priest who became a Catholic priest right. and that was around the time that women priests started to be ordained so you see that some people do make that yeah that so call. you know mentors of my um, Gavin Ashenden who's been on here a few times and Michael Nazir Ali have both um, swum over to Rome uh, relatively recently mm. uh, there are a number of people a number of people doing that but I, I believe in the Anglican church I believe that actually the Reformation was the first Brexit we said we don't want uh, foreign rulers in this land, thank you very much. You have no jurisdiction in Great Britain, thank you. Yes. And Rome was very corrupt. And they also, you know, the Roman church shifted away uh, for a while, or our perception was that they shifted away from uh, tradition for a while. There is much more unity in ecumenism now than there was at the time. Mm. But I don't see myself as a Roman Catholic. I am an Anglican. What are the implications globally, though? Because, I mean, the Anglican church has a lot of dominion in African states and places yeah. like this that, that surely are not going to be happy about issues related to homosexuality, relating to yeah. uh, trans issues. I mean, that's just embedded culturally. That's, you know, we know that. Well, so so what's that? Is the church heading for a split? Well, yes, maybe. But the, looking at the African church gives me hope. Looking at the wider Anglican communion gives me hope. The ACNA in North America is doing fantastic. But also the Af Africans, they're just scriptural. They say, no, that isn't. That's not biblical. You can't do that. <laughs> and right. shut it straight down. Um, homosexual marriage is a, is a good example. Because over here in the United Kingdom, we're so progressive. We're like, yeah, well, we, we need to do that. It's about equality. And it's, about, it's like, no, it's not about being against gay people. It's not about being against equal rights. It's about 
marriage as a sacrament in the Christian faith is a man and a woman uniting unto God. And it's as simple as that. And if, if you see it as bigoted, then you have a, um, a different view, but that's not the Christian view. <laughs> and that's fine, but you can't change scripture and you can't change the faith to match your progressive liberal views. And you can't, the faith isn't supposed to be chasing societal norms. It's supposed to be, this is, it's morally absolute. And that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because it feels as though uh, for a long time now, the church has been um, almost playing catch up with the rest of society. But isn't yeah. the very appeal of a body like the Church of England, its traditionalism, the fact that, you know, that if I want to be part of a, a group uh, that supports gay marriage and wants gay marriage, yeah. I won't go there because they don't. Yeah. And it's, it's not like anyone's behind anything. It's all clear. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, it, it feels churlish to sort of say, yeah. I want to bring my own values into this ancient institution. It's quite funny, actually, because if you're chasing society, you're always going to be lagging behind it a bit. So yeah. it's never going to be quite where you want it to be. And it's never going to attract the people that you're trying to attract. But it, that's not supposed to be the, the job of the church. The, ch the church should be a shining light in an ever-darkening world. It should be countercultural. It should be, you know, mm. people are getting sick of this, this ever-progressive and increasingly perverse world of, you know, of, of OnlyFans and, and sexual promiscuity and all of this nonsense. And people want to see goodness, and that's what the church should be offering. Do you think there are, that other religions will soon start to bear the brunt? A lot of it seems to come down to Christianity. You know, when we talk about, you know, this, this politician who was uh, arrested for citing the Bible, I don't see people being arrested for citing the Quran. Oh, for they wouldn't dare, would they? Well, but I wonder because, <laughs> because, you know, there are passages there that would definitely qualify as hate speech under woke rules. But this is why uh, Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, any faithful religious person needs to stand up for Christians because Christians are the easy target, but we are, mm. and we are the most persecuted faith in the world. But what do you mean by that, though? Because the number of churches that are being destroyed, the number of Christians that are being arrested and killed around the world is is more than any other faith. Right, uh, and those those stats are out there. But the problem is that the old, you know, they came, first they came for you, and I did nothing, and then yeah. they came for me. And I think the other faiths need to stand up for us because. Christians aren't necessarily standing up for ourselves at the moment. I don't think that's occurred to anyone, but but it does feel as though Christianity is the sort of yeah, like you say, an, an easier target because it's and it, not. I mean, in terms of mockery as well, it's very easy to. Uh, but to, in the West, you, it's an easy target because it's kind of that self-flagellation of the West, isn't it? Is that you know, Britain's a horrible place and Christianity is a bad thing, and we spread this horrible nastiness around the world with our empire, forgetting all the good that the empire brought, and and you know, forgetting to look at history, history holistically. It's all about the negativity at the moment. Is there any way in which it might be that they've sort of misunderstood your stance insofar as, let's take the institutional racism point. Yeah. I often get in arguments with, with people about these issues and it keeps coming back to the same thing, is that when I say, I don't see this institution as being structurally racist or systemically racist, yeah. they interpret that as me saying, I don't think racism is a thing, yeah. that racism doesn't exist. Could it be that they just think you're denying racism? The, no, the, the bishops are smart, but people in general do the, say that all the time. They do, it don't drives they? me nuts. Carl <laughs> Robertson says racism doesn't exist. I have to start every debate now saying racism does exist. I have experienced <laughs> racism plenty of times, but that does not make the country institutionally racist. And there's a, there is an element of cognitive dissonance at play because people here, you don't think the country is institutionally racist and assume that you think that there is no such thing as racism. Why is that? But that's part of the trick, isn't it? They, 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 they use phrases like anti-racism yeah. because to disagree with that makes you sound like you're for racism yeah, of course you know whereas of course anti-racism is very much uh, this idea that you're either 
proactively anti-racist or you're a racist. In fact, Ibram X. Kendi even says to be not racist is a form of racism yeah. because you're not actively doing something about it. Now, that's that's kind of difficult to grasp. Andrew, we had fireworks lit through our letterbox. We had people steal our laundry. We had people spit at, spit at us in the street. Like We had genuine racism. You've experienced it. Yeah. yeah. I know what racism is. It really frustrates me when people undermine me by saying, you, you know, you, you're saying racism doesn't exist. And it's, it's so frustrating. And you're getting that a lot from dare I say it's for white people. It's always white middle class liberal elites, always. But I think it's a form of projection because I think they're surrounded in their echo chamber by people that look like them, talk like them, think like them. So there is an element of probably, you know, one of their subconscious racism theories at play and they're projecting that onto us. Their view, I suppose, is that um, people still experience racism because it is tacitly accepted somehow in society. But you would, you would say that's How not true. How is it? How is it accepted in society? The moment you you even refer to someone's skin color these days, you're seen as racist. I don't see it, I don't see that as the the truth. So, is your view on this that we have to take an evidence led led approach? I mean, the Cred report, which you mentioned, is an interesting yeah. one because that the, that report similarly was accused of denying racism. Yeah. And in the report itself, it said things like racism exists. Yeah. We have to stand up for racism. The, what it was proposing was a uh, a different uh, an evidence led method yeah. of tackling those issues. And that, and and the, and the response to it seemed to be just denialism. Yeah, it, it, seemed... fa- it found many, many elements of racial in- disparities and racial injustice, and it provided a, a whole host of solutions. And the, the government's inclusive Britain report has taken on board seventy-four of those actions. That's that's incredible. Everyone should be celebrating that. We were helping to make this country a better place for everyone, and we're promoting equality for everyone. But of course, the liberal the liberal elite on the left are saying, "Well, you haven't said that this country is institutionally racist. That's so it's not good enough. Therefore." We we have to fight against it. So you almost have to. So they're expecting people to, to make that statement of, of faith yeah, in institutional exactly. racism before exactly. we can get any further. Well, then again, uh, you know, I get into these arguments all the time. But the the you've written about the way in which critical race theory has been imported to the UK and the way in which these ideas are coming over. But but again, we're faced with continual denialism. People will just say that isn't that isn't happening. Yeah. Um, but Brighton Council have explicitly uh, inaugurated critical race theory in their anti-racist school strategy. The Green Councillor, who was predominantly involved, said that critical race theory was the lens through which she saw this, although they don't use the phrase in the in the text itself. So is that the the way it's being smuggled in? As in, they just they just don't use the phrase to yeah. sort of get around it. Oh, yeah, they won't call it critical race theory. So these reports that came out from the church, for example, they'd never refer to critical race theory, but they right. use the language of it. And, and you can see it if you've read, read anything on critical race theory. You can see the language as plain as day. And they'll say things like, you know, we need to have more black theology to apologize for heteronormative, white, um, oppressive history. And you're like, first of all, they're all buzzwords and it means nothing. But secondly, that is the language of critical race theory. You're looking at the world through a racial lens and you're, you're no longer asking the question, was racism at play here? You're asking, how was racism at play here? And... And even that language itself, like black theology has become a massive thing. So every single training college uh, for the priesthood now has to teach black theology. And that's this idea that we're putting our personal identity before theology. And theology is the study of God. So now we are more important in that in that title than God. We come before God. We're putting self-identity before the Almighty. Yeah. We're worshipping the self is what we're doing. That's what workness is. It's a worshipping of the self. Well, let's put some of their arguments to you just in the interest of fairness, right? So they say that when we look at, say, boards, CEOs, uh, even the the head, the bishops in the Church of England, as you said, 
uh, they're predominantly white. Uh, Hamza Youssef uh, did that speech oh. in the Scottish Parliament. Whites, whites, going whites. <laughs> yeah, he started sounding very anti-white in that speech. I mean, isn't Scotland a 97, 96% white country? That might be why mm. in that case. But let's just take the argument yeah. that it is true uh, that, that black people, for instance, are underrepresented in positions of power. So then how do you address that if, if, if not through wholesale cultural revolution? Well, first of all, we have to acknowledge the fact that you just did that this is a predominantly white country. So, of course, we're going to see predominantly white boards. But it, but then you can look at the representation and say, well, it's still not They'd say disproportionate. in line with. Yeah, yeah, of course. And to do that, you have to re- you have to look at the wider issues. So this is what the CRED report did. It said, well, why are black kids failing in school? And then it looked at the evidence and saw that actually, well, black kids aren't failing in school. There's actually a massive disparity there. And it found that black African kids are twice as likely to go to university, and they're actually excelling throughout primary and secondary compared to most other kids, including black Caribbean and white British. And then you see that black Caribbean and white British are near the bottom of the board, mm. just above the Romani gypsies. And you kind of see, okay, so it's not about black or white. There are further things at play here. And you break it down even further, and you see that actually what it is is that black Caribbean kids have been integrated, black, well, black Caribbean families have been integrated into British society a lot longer. And that's why they fall into the level of white British kids, because who are the ones who have been neglected? So British kids in general are just slumping right. down. And African kids tend to be more recent immigrants, and they still hold to family values. They still hold to social mobility. They still hold to the fact that you go to education, uh, you go to school to get a good education so mm. you can get a good job, a bit utilitarian, but it's all about climbing the ladder. Whereas over here, we've forgotten about all of that, and many parents don't see it the importance of education, uh, and many kids don't see the importance because their parents do. That's a really interesting point from the report, though, wasn't it? That if if there is an institutional race, racism problem within education, it's a very targeted form yeah. because it appears to elevate yeah. kids from an African background, but not kids from a Caribbean background. So Do you know many so, racists that would, would separate the two and hate black Caribbean people, but love black African people? Yeah, well, this is what I mean. So, <laughs> And yet that seems to me irrefutable. And yet people just ignored it. I mean, the, the response from the Runnymede Trust yeah. was flat out denial. It, it, it was completely lacking in evidence. It was just almost sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, I've yet to hear any of the uh, the people, the critics of the CRED report address that specific... I'm sure there are points within that report that you could criticise, right? And that's fair enough. Yeah. But that specific point about, you know, how can you hold to the view that our education system is institutionally racist when the data proves that it isn't? I'm not going to say it. Proves that it isn't. It absolutely isn't. Because they don't uphold to evidence anymore. They don't stick by first principles. It's all anecdotal. And when they do use evidence, it's all cherry-picking. And I've played them at their own game because they say, oh, the NHS is is institutionally racist because black mothers tend to die more in labour than white mothers. So therefore, that's proof of racism. And you're like, well, first of all, it's not. It's a racial disparity. We need to look further and find out why that's happening. But if you're going to cherry-pick stats like that, I can say that the NHS is institutionally racist. Absolutely because uh, black cancer patients are dying more, uh, sorry, white cancer patients are dying more than black cancer patients. Why is the NHS treating white cancer patients like this? Of course, it's not the case that cancer doctors are racist. It's the case that there's something wider at play here and we need to delve deeper down and look at what's going on. But they they only use these stats at a cherry-picking level, a surface level, because it helps their argument. They're not interested in solving the problem. They're interested in backing up their argument. And if you were for racial equality authentically, you would want to solve the problem and you'd want to find out why. And I suppose just saying racism, it's a simplistic th- formula that, that solves the problem. And actually, there are probably other things going on there that would benefit 
uh, ethnic minority people if you delve down a little bit more. Yeah, it would benefit all of all people. And that's the best way to solve these issues is, is have solutions that help everyone, help bring everyone up. If you focus on one particular demographic, there's always going to be someone else that's left behind, which is why white working class boys are at the bottom of the league tables right now, because we've been focusing on girls or if you're focusing on ethnic minorities. Like, yeah. You can't do that. Do you accept, though, that there are, I mean, in a society, and I think you and I both agree that, you know, it's just not socially acceptable to be racist in our society, and that's a good thing. Mm. You know, we've reached that point. That's an incredible... Well, not entirely. What do you mean? It so, is socially acceptable to be racist towards white people. Anti-whiteness is very fashionable. Yes, but of course, the um, critical race theorists would say it's not possible to be racist towards and white people. Wrong. Okay. <laughs> you, can't, you can't redefine words to win an argument, and that's what they do. They say racism is not... Is not um, discrimination against someone based on the color of their skin. It's not an inferiority complex. It is actually just a power dynamic and, and white people yeah. are at the top. No, you can't do that. Use it, make up a new word if you want to use a new word, but you can't redefine a word to win your argument. But do you accept that, uh, given that we live in a society where certainly to be racist towards ethnic minority people, we can all agree, you know, you're not going to get a job, you're not going to be, you know, yeah. which is right. Yeah. I, think, I think those people should be pariahs. Yeah. I don't want people like that um, advancing through the ranks. But given that we live in that society... There are still areas in which racism can manifest itself. And studies have shown, for instance, that if you are to apply for jobs and you have an, uh, a name that is foreign sounding, you're less likely to be called for interview. And that, the studies do seem to confirm that that's yeah. a repeated thing. Yeah. And, and I suppose one way of looking at that is that racism is just because it's no longer acceptable has been subsumed. And it's a kind of unconscious thing now. Do you have any uh, truck with that view. I think that's a good example of, of where we found racism that does exist, uh, perhaps on a systemic level, um, because we're looking at the evidence. And uh, right. when we do that, we can work on solutions. So that's a, that's a great one, because if we're seeing that people aren't called back if they have an ethnic-sounding surname, then we have to promote blind CVs. There you go, problem solved. <laughs> if we find, <laughs> find a disparity that is genuine, we can provide a solution. But that all means always returning to evidence-based. Because one thing you've never said is that racism has, has gone. No. It, it, it can still exist. Of and course can, it is. You know. It's an evil and we need to stamp it out. And we need to, we can't do that if we see everything as racist because then we undermine genuine racism that does exist. And to just, again, I'm going to keep posing arguments to you from, no, from that side because I think it's interesting. And one of the things that um, uh, critical race theorists, whiteness experts, they call themselves, uh, <laughs> you're shuddering at the word. Yeah. Um, they would say, well, if we look at education, for instance, there has been a failure within the education system to teach kids about the history of black British people, right? Do you, now, you're coming from an educational background. Yeah. I mean, isn't there merit to that? You know, I would say that I, as a kid, didn't learn about the, the, the British complicity in the slave trade. I will admit that. Okay. And I've learned a lot about it since. And I'm glad that I know about it now. And that I think that is something that kids should learn about, isn't it? Okay. First of all, uh, I hate that word whiteness because it suggests <laughs> that it's no longer about your skin color. It's a, it's a characteristic that you, you can take on board. And people have accused me of having whiteness and they disregard my skin color now. I'm no longer black or mixed race. I, you know, I take on elements of whiteness. It, it's, it's a personality trait almost. And that's bizarre because, again, that's them redefining something. In order well, doesn't whiteness mean a system of power? Well, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, 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 but what I find odd about the, the word whiteness is it, it seems to be used, you know, those who use the term claim that they're talking about power structures, but then every now and then they slip and it's clear they're just talking about white people. Well, they're redefining terms because they have the power structure. So they'll say, you know, black people are oppressed and held back. And if I say, actually, as a person of color, I don't feel oppressed or held back. But well, you're not black then. So they redefine the you're, terms. You're enacting whiteness. Yeah, yeah. 
just to win the argument. Right. Again, it's changing the definitions. But okay, well, we to get said, to your question about yes, education. Let's get, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. that. Most of the time when people say, look, I wasn't taught about slave trade or I wasn't taught about X, Y, Z, my, my response is, first of all, how do you know you weren't? Because you might not remember it. You know, school was a while ago. <laughs> or you might have been taught it poorly. There's lots of poor education going on in this country. So I did some research into this. I know a thing or two about this because I've, I've spent a lot of time because it really gets on my nerves when people say, we need to teach more black history because, first of all, there is no black history. There's British history. And this world history and, and European history, you know, there's the events that helped shape the nation into what it is now. And we shouldn't divide it based on skin color. But what I found was that actually our history books at the moment are very broad and very balanced. And there's a lot on our national curriculum about colonialism, the empire, slave trade. Uh, there's pretty much there's a lot on that stuff. Has that is that re relatively new since that, the... Yeah, it's 2014 onwards. Oh, okay. So predates the Black Lives Matter protests yep. following George Floyd. But a lot of these pr protesters who say we need more black history don't know what's on the curriculum because I've sat down and asked them, like, well, what do we need more of? And what is on there at the moment? And it's just, you know, we need more black what is black history? I don't know. Um, but I think the problem there is that it's politicising education. Okay. And education should be about imparting knowledge. It should be passing on... Um, the best there has been in terms of literature, and it should be about um, conserving the past so that we have something for the future. But do you accept that these are that uh, the slave trade uh, is that's an element of British history? It, it shouldn't be erased or forgotten or revised. It, it is an so element. It's an annoying element because it's the only element that people care about. But yes, it is an element. We should teach about it. Of course, we should, and we do. But yeah. it's, it's like it's the only slave trade that ever existed. And slavery is an evil that has been going on all around the world throughout all of human history. It's still going on right now. And I wish we could talk about it more holistically and talk about the Barbary slave trade and talk about all the other slave trade. You know, Africans have been selling each other long before the white man turned up. Uh, Arabs have been taking both blacks and whites for a long, long time. It's like, why are we obsessed with one particular part of the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade? Why is that? So am I right in thinking you, you find it quite frustrating, um, the attempts to sort of alter history or at least you know i mean let's take the, the toppling of statues i'm guessing from what you've said that you're very much against this idea of erasing the landmarks street names oh, um you'll know the other day it was reported that gladstone park brent council gladstone park is going to be renamed it's been suggested diane abbott park as a, suggest <laughs> as a suggestion i presume you might have a problem with that i don't know what <laughs> Uh, I know you're a big fan of Diane Abbott. I bless her. If they want, if Brent Council, which is an awful council, I, I lived in Brent for a long time. If they want to create a new park, which would be a great thing, a new green space, and call that the Diane Abbott Park, I'm all for it. Well, to be fair, I mean, she achieved a lot. She, you know, to become a parliamentarian at a time when black women, yeah, women yeah. in particular, you know, that yeah. that's an achievement. I agree with you. you know? Create a new one, fantastic, brilliant. But don't go around renaming things. Don't this whole year zero thing. So Diane Abbott could be celebrated for many reasons, but tomorrow she could cut, turn around and say the most racist, anti-Semitic, um, I don't know, anti-Ukraine thing. She could say she could cancel herself tomorrow, and then what are they going to do? Rename the park again? This whole idea of renaming parks after and, and things after living yeah. people that are held up as heroes. You know, th there's a school that wanted to rename a house Greta Thunberg. The, the poor girl's not even a woman yet. She yeah. could do anything in the rest of her life that would. Well, there's always the potential. To, I mean, also because ethical trends can change. Yeah, you don't know that. You know what she's saying now might be considered horrific exactly. in a hundred years' time. But I mentioned the Gladstone Park one specifically, not because I want to mock Diana, but I don't think that's fair. But 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 the 
because Gladstone himself was very against slavery, very explicitly against slavery. It was his father who was complicit. So it's almost well, as though matter. the it, sins of the father are inherited these days. That's, that's, that is the new original sin, isn't it? Whiteness is the new original sin. If you are white, at some point in your past, there will be someone who may have had some link to the British Empire. They might not have owned slaves themselves, but they will have been at some point being a colonialist in the eyes mm. of the woke lot. Therefore, you are guilty. You, not, not, not your fathers, not your forefathers. And you can't rid yourself of that guilt. There is no repentance. There's no forgiveness. But do you accept that? I mean, I spoke to, for instance, I spoke to Femi Islander, who was one of the campaigners in the Roads Must Fall campaign. And his view is clearly, and a number of activists, their view is that the, the very presence of those statues, what it is, it's, it's a reminder. It, 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 it's saying that, that, that it's a celebration of what those people stood for. And it's a direct, therefore, is a direct insult to those who were descended from those who were abused, victimized and exploited. Do you, do you take that point? No, that, that is say, offensive. No, I don't think it's offensive. I don't think I've ever walked past a statue and felt offended by it. And I think people that say that, are, I honestly think they're making it up. I think they're looking for an argument. I, even people like Colston, you know, I, no, let's not talk about specifics because every single person that has a statue up has done something that we would find abhorrent. Every single person has done something we would disagree with because that's what people are. We're all fallen individuals. We're all imperfect. We don't put statues up to say this person is a saint. We should glorify them. We put it up to celebrate something good that they've done. Mm. And maybe they've invested in hospitals, schools, or almshouses or whatever, like a lot of these people have. And that will be the reason. It won't be their link to something bad that, that they have a statue up for. And we don't celebrate that. Yeah. But then I suppose, you know... Uh... If you live in, I mean, the, the, the continually the phrase lived experience is, is used. And you, you've yourself talked about instances of racism that you've experienced. And if you grow up in a country, yeah. and look, it may be the case that, that um, you know, obviously the vast majority of people would never perpetrate racism in that way. You know, that just isn't a thing. But those minority that do, when you're on the receiving end of it, and it happens to you a number of times, it makes sense that you start to feel, well, this country, everything is, 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 is racist. There must be something built in. Otherwise, this wouldn't happen to me. Just on a human level, do you see where people are coming from there? No, because I think a lot of these activists aren't actually coming from that experience or that background. And I, I do think lived experiences are important. We should listen to people's experiences, but they shouldn't trump evidence. And that's right. what's happening quite often. And when we look at what's going on, a lot of these cases of, of so-called racism are perceived racism. And it's no longer, you don't no longer take on board the intent of the person mm. or the context of what was said or done. It's all about how you perceived it. If you perceived something to be racist, therefore it is racist. And I don't think that's appropriate. And do you think that the likes of Robin D'Angelo are making that kind of perception more likely? Because she says, she argues, a white woman, by the way, argues that every human interaction is underpinned by racism. Yeah, imagine that. So this interaction right here is underpinned by racism. She would say it is. In some way. She would absolutely say that it is, that there's a power dynamic here. That's just mental gymnastics, isn't it? In order to what? In order to what? It's a, ra it's a actually on her behalf. It's a racial grievance industry. She makes a lot of money from. She makes an awful lot. Yes. She so does. it's in her interest to suggest that racism is a power dynamic that you cannot escape. So you don't. So you don't believe her. You don't. You. Think I don't believe her. But I don't think. I don't believe there is anything inescapable or unforgivable, and that includes racism. I, d I don't think you being born white means that you are unforgivably and subconsciously racist. Uh, because I'm a Christian and I believe that everything we do is based on our own actions, not uh, not the sins of our forefathers. Mm. Uh, although we do inherit original sin, we all, we're all fallen individuals, we all make mistakes, and we can be forgiven for those mistakes. In fact, we are forgiven for those mistakes. It's Easter tide right now. That's a demonstration that we're all forgiven because he died for our sins. That's a really interesting point. I think the value of forgiveness, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, is surely such a fundamental and important human emotion, something that we should be all be capable of. Yeah. And I can't help but feel that the entire woke movement 
it, it's absent there. There's, there's this gaping hole where forgiveness and redemption should be uh, that, that in a sense, essentially it has to eat itself mm. because there's no way that something that is so, that lacks mercy, yeah. uh, that lacks that capacity um, can really sustain itself, can it? Because won't it just turn on it, on yeah. each other eventually? It, it is the woke snake eating itself, isn't it? It really is mm. because, uh, you know, people like J.K. Rowling, she was considered woke for a while and then she never stepped so, yeah. the mark and now she's cancelled. Like you can never be woke enough and the movement progresses so rapidly that you can't keep up unless you're really invested in it and that is your hobby. So uh, everyone will get cancelled at some point, which is, again, why people need to stand up against this nonsense and say, you know, at some point they're going to come for me, so I'm going to say, no, that's a nonsense, I don't believe in it, stop it. Have you had any luck talking to woke activists or, or do they refuse to engage i mean i every week i invite people onto my show to talk yeah they never they never come on <laughs> the, the wokest won't will they no they won't because they, won't. they can't argue they can't debate because they don't is that like why? they don't like evidence but their so argument how... isn't that their argument is that to to discuss these issues with me is to legitimize yeah, yeah. the debate but that's, that's the... an excuse isn't it because, because <laughs> you can't argue against feelings with facts so what are you going to do with them we're coming at it from two completely different perspectives there is no common ground quite often so how can that be resolved then? Because I often feel that the reason, one of the reasons why the culture wars seem in a kind of interminable spiral is precisely because people aren't talking. Yeah. But they can never talk if one side of the debate says that the very idea of rationality and debate, I mean, didn't someone, Nadia Whitten, described debate as a fetish? You know, the idea that, that we can't sit and talk about these things will mean that it, it, we are doomed to re remain in this culture war forever. But also we're using different language, aren't we? And even if we use the same words, we don't have the same meanings. So we there is no dialogue there anymore. But of course, you're right. And, and I think it is, it's not just a cultural war, it's a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual war for this nation or for Western ways of life. And I think what we've done is we've neglected, you know, the West was Christendom. You know, and this country was a Christian nation. We've neglected that faith and something's had to fill that void. And I think wokeness feels like a religion because it's filled the religious void. People have their own moral code now. People feel they have a sense of belonging when they're a part of this. And that is why they've othered everyone else. It's a defense mechanism because if you're not part of their own crowd, they, they want to feel protected and that's why they project and, and they, they can't engage and they won't engage. Do you ever experience this when, uh, you know, oh, you're talking there about I suppose, national pride, the idea of a tradition, that often, because those things have also been co-opted by some very extreme voices on the far right that are very unpleasant, it may be ethno-nationalist, that kind of thing. I find that the work activists will often try and conflate those views yeah. and sort of say, well, that you are therefore within that camp. Yeah. How do you respond to that? I'm sure you've had that accusation. Yeah, I mean, I challenge the, the far right, as much, well, not as much as I challenge the far left because they're not as prominent, but when they pop up, for example, on my Twitter feed or something, I challenge them too. But not to appease the far left, just because I think they're also wrong. Yes. Um, Ethno-nationalism and all of that stuff is, is is ugly. But I think we just have to promote alternatives. We have to lead by example. So, you know, when someone attacks me, there was that charity, the Race Trust, that called me a house negro, for example, and I wrote an article supporting oh, yes. her free speech to say that, even though I thought it was wrong and it, it was very hurtful. Like, we have to lead by example we can't because so often on our side oh, i say our side so often on the side of free speech or, or the right and they often conflate we can fall into the trap of cancel culture ourselves and say oh these guys are wrong we need to stop that we need to cancel that and we have to and i know you're a free speech absolutist so you're not someone who does this but we have to kind of not fall into that, that trap yes. and to do that we have to allow them to say things that we totally disagree with things that we think are abhorrent wicked even um, and support and fight for their right to do so and forgive them at the same time 
and forgiveness is the key. But they they ought to be criticised though for oh, absolutely challenge criticised. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean that that example that you gave. I mean that sounds like a horrendous thing for someone to say about. Oh, it's awful. It's really really horrible. Um, but, what was their justification for it? Um, oh, I'd been on TV. I, I can't remember if it was some BBC question program anyway um yes. and i think i'd maybe around the cred report time and mm-hmm. I, I talked about you know the stuff we've been talking about today yes and because i'm not representing my people or giving the argument that they expect a black person to have which in itself i think is quite racist to yes. expect all people of one skin color to have a certain opinion because i didn't i was called a house negro um and what can what can you say about that what do they mean by that that you're that you're the servant to the to white people that you're doing white people's yeah. biddings most of the time it's either you know, the, the people that use these kind of arguments either say that I am um, subservient to, to the white master, so I'm just doing whatever the white person says, or I'm playing to that audience. So Uncle Tom, you know, tap dancing is mm. another one, uh, trying to please white people or appease white people. It cannot possibly be that I hold these opinions. I mean, this sounds like so a very... Someone has to give them to me. ...patronizing worldview, this idea that you mustn't, you can't think for yourself because you're not in line... I mean, and, and, and it's clearly a soft form of racism to assume that people with the skin colour must have all the same views. But it's also very liberal elites as well. You know, if you look at um, black nations in general, they tend to be small C conservative. It's only over here in, in the West that we see, well, especially in Great Britain and America, that there's this assumption that if you're black, you have to vote Labour or be left-leaning or, you know, Democrat, whatever. Yes. In the rest of the world, it's not actually like that. Most of Africa and the Caribbean are well, more conservative than we, than we are. Yes. So there is no black opinion. No. So where do we go from here? I mean, I, every time I think, you know, the, 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 there's a, some pushback against the excesses of the woke movement and I think, oh, well, that's great. You know, if maybe there's a free speech battle that's been won or maybe someone, you know, who had lost their job has it reinstated or whatever. Yeah. There, there follows just 10 other things that push back in the other way. And, yeah. and it, it, it just feels that the, the, the woke left, the identitarian left, whatever we want to call them, will always double down again and again and again. And it just doesn't feel like this is going away. And I really want it to go away. Yeah. Um, but what's going to happen? How, how, what's the way out? I think we have to offer an alternative, a positive alternative. So, for example, a lot of these people in the trans movement, these activists, a lot of people haven't had surgery. A lot of people don't have gender dysmorphia. A lot of people just feel like they want to belong to a community. They, you know, We've got a lot of family breakdown in this country, a lot of fatherlessness, and a lot of isolated and lonely people. And what we see is the moment you say you're, you're trans or the moment you say you're identifying as something, um, I don't want to use the word non-ordinary, but... You know, I know what you mean. So, yeah. The moment you stand out in that way, you instantly have a community, a family, a friendship group, a, a whole basis of people that okay. will love and support you. And, and again, that's why they other everyone else, because it's a defense mechanism against us lot, breaking down their logic, because they, they, they want to cling to that so dearly, because people are lonely, isolated, and lost. And so missing. you think this is about belonging? Absolutely. It's all about belonging. All about it. We, we need to remind people that, well, from my perspective, I think we need to remind people that they belong to God and that the, their Heavenly Father is there for them, Christ is with them in their suffering. But also we need to remind people that they belong to this country. It doesn't matter what colour you are, what religion you are, none of that matters. We're all British. That's the thing that brings us all together. It unites us all. We are one community. We belong to each other. We have to look out for each other. We have a sense of duty and obligation to each other. And that will make people feel like they belong. And that, that's much better than siphoning people off into these individual groups, especially if it's based on a characteristic about yourself that you cannot control. Calvin Robertson, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure. God bless you. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, Calvin Robinson. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please do like and subscribe and join us again next week where we'll have another fabulous guest. I'll see you then.